We'll get started tonight. We're continuing our series, There's More to the Story, and Types and Shadows of the Old Testament pointing to the fulfillment of those types and shadows, the substance, which is Christ. Um, we have started in Genesis and slowly working our way through. Last week, uh, we were in chapter 14 of Genesis talking about Melchizedek and how uh, he was a shadow pointing to the one who would be the ultimate fulfillment of that, the greater Melchizedek, it would be Jesus Christ. And tonight we are staying in the book of Genesis and we find ourselves uh, with the primary uh, text of verses that we're going to read tonight in Genesis 18. We'll be in Genesis 18, starting in verse 20 and reading down through Genesis 19, verse 29. And tonight we're going to talk about uh, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. I think it'll be something that will be pretty amazing. Um, I know what it is, and I'm still amazed. So um, hopefully that you will be as well. So let's, uh, let's put one finger in Genesis 18, verse 20. Let's start there, and um, well, let's just read this. We were going to read Genesis 13 briefly, but we'll do that in just a second. So we've got a lot to read here tonight, but I think that's important to get the context, to get the details of this story Um, So let's pick it up in Genesis chapter 18, verse 20. Here's what it says. And the Lord said, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. I will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to its outcry, which has come to me, and if not, I will know. Then the men turned away from there and went toward Sodom while Abraham was still standing before the Lord. Abraham came near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? So the Lord said, If I find in Sodom and 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare the whole place on their account. And Abraham replied, Now, behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord, although I am but dust and ashes. Suppose the 50 righteous are lacking five. Will you destroy the whole city because of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. He spoke to him yet again and said, suppose 40 are found there. And he said, I will not do it on the account of the 40. Then he said, oh, may the Lord not be angry and I shall speak. Suppose 30 are found there. And he said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of the 20. Then he said, oh, may the Lord not be angry, and I shall speak only this once. Suppose 10 are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on the count of the 10. As soon as he had finished speaking to Abraham, the Lord departed and Abraham returned to his place. Verse 1 of chapter 19. Now the two angels came to Sodom. In the evening, as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom, when Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. And he said, Now behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. They said, However, no, but we shall spend the night in the square. Yet he urged them strongly, So they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he prepared a feast for them and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from from every quarter. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. But Lot went out to them at the doorway and shut the door behind him and said, Please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. Now behold, I have two daughters who have had 
who have not had relations with man. Please let me bring them out to you and do to them whatever you like. Only do nothing to these men inasmuch as they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand aside. Furthermore, they said, this one came in as an alien and already he is acting like a judge. Now we will treat you worse than them. So they pressed hard against Lot and came near to break the door. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. They struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they were wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. Then the two men said to Lot, Whom else have you here? A son-in-law and your sons and your daughters and whomever you have in the city, bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place because their outcry has become so great that the Lord, because the Lord, that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters and said, Up, get out of this place for the Lord will destroy the city. But he appeared to his sons-in-law to be jesting. When morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he hesitated. So the men seized his hand and the hand of his wife and the hands of his two daughters, for the compassion of the Lord was upon him. And they brought him out and put him outside the city. When they had brought them outside, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you and do not stay anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains or you will be swept away. But Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords. Now behold, your servant has found favor in your sight and you have magnified your loving kindness, which you have shown me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains for the disaster will overtake me and I will die. Now behold, this town is near enough to flee and it is small. Please let me escape there. Is it not small that my life may be saved? And he said to him, Behold, I grant you this request also, not to overthrow the town of which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I can do nothing until you arrive there. Therefore the name of the town was called Zoar. The sun had risen over the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But his wife from behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Now Abraham arose early in the morning and went to the place where he had stood before the Lord and looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he saw and behold, the smoke of the land ascended like the smoke of a furnace. Thus it came about when God destroyed the cities of the valley that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrown when he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. That's hard to read, isn't it? To hear the wickedness that's in this town. And, and, uh, but this is pointing to something in the future. This is pointing to the eternal judgment. This is pointing to the last day when God's immutable wrath is poured out on all the ungodly and the unrighteous. Before we dive into this in great detail, let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you, Lord, and we ask for help tonight. We ask that you would send the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, as we have talked about him on Sunday night, that brings the truth of your word alive and to our hearts and to our minds. Lord, we ask that, that he would lead us tonight and to see the beauty, the truth, and the seriousness in these words that we've read tonight. Father, help us, we pray, and let us heed the warning that was given here on this day. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to begin in Genesis 13, just so we can get a little bit of context, which will come back to uh, be of great benefit to us in the end. In Genesis chapter 13, in verses 14 through 16, we see that God 
had promised Abram that the land which is currently occupied by the ungodly would someday be the land of his descendants, and that would be the inheritance of his descendants. Now, this is, this is fulfilled partially as we go through Scripture. We see that as they leave the Exodus and they leave Egypt and they start to uh, inherit this land, there's, there's moments and times throughout Scripture, the Old Testament, they, that they come in to occupy these lands. But the great fulfillment of this is on the last day. It's when we, who are Abraham's descendants by faith, enter into this land that is promised, which would be the new heaven and the new earth. It's interesting here that the land that he promises is on earth. It's not in the heavens, because we know that it will be here on earth in a new heaven and a new earth that we who are believers will dwell forever. And this is the promise that he made to Abram. And if you remember Melchizedek, we briefly talked about that last week, how he Cut the animals in half, God did. And in this theophany, he uh, went down the middle of the carcass and made this promise to Abraham that as the stars would be in the sky, that would be his descendants. And here it's important to know before we get into this that Abram was promised that this land would be for his descendants. Now, we can go to Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 9, and we can talk about that the, the descendants of Abraham... And who they are. Let's read that in Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 9. It says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children, because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of the promise. At this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. Abraham believed in the promise that there would be a son that would come. And it would be faith in that promise that would grant him righteousness. It would be the descendants of Abraham by faith, us, who would believe in the one son who would come, Jesus. And by believing in him, the one and only son, we would be uh, children of faith like Abraham And we would have this promise to dwell in the new heaven and the new earth. And we find that in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16 through 14 as well. It's going to come back full circle. That's why we're spending a little bit more time at the front talking about Abraham and this promise. Galatians chapter 3, verse 6 through 14 says this. Even so, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The scripture foreseen that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. That's a foreshadowing of the mystery of the gospel, the Gentiles being grafted in. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Know that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Again, it is through faith that we are deemed righteous. It is through faith that we are declared righteous and justified like Abraham. And it is through faith in Christ and the only begotten Son that we are sons of Abraham by faith. So this promise that his descendants would inherit the earth here, the final fulfillment of that is when all his believers enter in to the new heaven and the new earth. Okay, so that's the promise that he made to Abraham. And this is where we find ourselves setting the stage to come into this story. And we read Sodom and Gomorrah and we read in chapter 18 that Abraham begins to barter with God. And the number of righteous people starts out at 50, and it gets down to 10. 
Well, we can just stop and just for a moment begin to state this fact that when we were in the, the Sermon on the Mount in the last chapter we covered in chapter 7, do you remember those sets of verses that says that the gate is small and the road and the path is narrow and there be few be that find it? Here in this city with numerous amount of people, you could see that the number of righteous was very, very small. But look what is in view. Look what God is looking for. What is the qualification for you, for the people in this story, to not receive the wrath and the fury of God? Righteousness. He's looking for the righteous. He's looking for the righteous people. It's required to escape the wrath here in Sodom and Gomorrah, and it's required to escape the wrath of God on the last day. What is the standard to enter heaven? Matthew chapter 5, verse 48 tells us that we are to be perfect because our heavenly Father is perfect. The requirement to escape the wrath in Sodom and Gomorrah was the righteous people, not by their own merit, by, by faith. Everyone who's ever been declared righteous in the history of the world has been declared righteous by one thing, and that is by faith alone. And it'll be the same day, thing on the day that the Lord returns. He's looking for righteousness. He's looking for the perfected righteousness uh, that, that is required to enter the new heaven and the new earth. But you and I know that no one is declared righteous in their own merit. Our righteousness are as filthy garments, and there's none righteous, no, not one. So the righteous standard to enter the new heaven and the new earth is perfection. And we know that there's only one who has ever been able to fulfill that requirement. It is the eternal Logos, the one we're reading about in the gospel according to John. He lived a perfect life. He fulfilled all righteousness. And by faith in him, we are justified. And in that justification, we are declared righteous. We are given the covering of righteousness of the Son, and because of His righteousness covering us, when He returns on the last day, that is the righteousness that He will see, and we will escape the wrath of God. It's the same in Sodom and Gomorrah. It's pointing to that the righteous will escape the wrath. When He comes to pour out His wrath, He will not pour it out on the righteous and the righteous of those who are covered in the righteousness of the Son. We read these verses in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. It is Christ's righteousness that we are declared righteous by, the imputed righteousness of Christ. Isaiah chapter 61 verse 10 says this, will greatly rejoice or will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God, for he hath clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland, as a bride adorns herself with jewels. Going back to speaking on how it is through our faith that that we are justified. It is through justification that we are declared righteous, and it is through that, that declaration of righteous that we escape the wrath of God. We find that in Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 is a great chapter. It is the results of justification. So in chapter 4, he tells us about justification, and then in chapter 5, it is as a result of justification, here's what happens. Here's what the benefit is. And in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, it says this, Therefore, having been justified, declared righteous, if you will, by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We'll talk about this a little on Sunday, but the war is over. The wrath of God is no longer abiding on those whom there's peace upon. And how is this peace made possible? By faith, which brings about our justification which brings about the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. And in verse 9, listen to this verse. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. 
Again, this whole scene in Sodom and Gomorrah is pointing to the wrath and the fury of God, and it shows us a hint of what's going to happen on the last day, only on an exponentially greater level. Again, it's the righteousness. If there's 50 righteous, if there's 40 righteous, 30 righteous, 20 righteous, 10 righteous, the righteous count will be small. But he's looking for righteousness. And the only righteousness that we have, again, is in the Son and His righteousness imputed by faith alone. But it is through this justification that we're spared from this wrath. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10 says this, And to wait for His Son... From heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. John 3, 36 says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Again, it's wrath upon unrighteous. And the righteous are saved. Again, not in our merit, but his righteousness. It's Jesus who saves us from this wrath. His righteousness applied to us. Just to add a couple notes on wrath, we are by nature deserving of wrath. That's what we are in our fallen state. We are deserving of wrath. We are by nature children of wrath. And until the sovereign hand of God changes us, saves us, sets us free, gives us the faith to believe, to which we can call on Him. That is the only way that we can be justified before Him. And before that, our fallen state, we're deserving of wrath. And I've said this a few times, but let me just say it again. One of, when we talk about eschatology, one of, uh, you know, the way that I was raised and many of you were raised was that there's a rapture, um, secret rapture of the church and, Seven years here on earth and three and a half years, a peace treaty is broken and great tribulation lasts three and a half years and then Christ comes back and then goes back to offering temple sacrifices and another thousand years. And then, and one of the verses that always was given to me to say, well, that doesn't, that's not what that, that can't be. One of the verses we find it, we find it in First Thessalonians chapter five, verse nine. I'll just read it to you. And just because you really can't escape the doctrines of grace, you're going to find some words in here that will continue to speak of election. And you'll find it. It says, For God has not destined us to wrath. And people would quote that to me and say, see, we won't be here for the tribulation. The wrath of God and tribulation are not the same thing. If you go to Revelation chapter 1, you find John saying, I am a fellow brother in the tribulation. Are we going to say that the apostle John was not a point, that he's not a Christian because he was here during some tribulation. That's not, that doesn't even make sense. It says that the elect are not destined to the wrath of God. Amen to that, because we believe. We place faith in Him. We are justified by faith. His righteousness covers us. And now we no longer have the wrath of God upon us. The elect have not been destined for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the, we are all by nature deserving of wrath, but the elect have not been destined to wrath, but to obtain salvation. We will escape that wrath on the last day because of the mercy of God. And a terrifying thought is this, that the ungodly, the unrighteous, as we speak, and you've heard me say this before, but Romans chapter 2 verse 5 gives us a view of this, that the ungodly and the unrighteous Uh, They are storing up wrath against that day. Every sin will continue to stack and pile, and they are storing up wrath unto that day. What a horrible thought that is, that the wrath of God will be poured out one day 
and all the ungodly and all the unrighteous, every sin that they commit, that's storing up, it's piling up against that day. So let's talk about the wrath of God just for a moment. We have verses here that tell us about the wrath of God. Revelation chapter 6, verse 16 through 17 says this, And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of the wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Think about this that the wrath of the Lamb has come, and they would rather have boulders crush them and hide them from the face of Him because of the presence of His glory and the wrath that is being distributed. You know, I find it interesting here in Revelation chapter 6. You see how that question ends that verse. It says, who is able to stand? And then we go into verse or chapter 7, and we find the great multitude around the throne. Those who have been sealed. Who's able to stand? The elect of God. Why? Because they're sealed. Because they've not been destined to wrath. Because they have the righteousness of their Savior applied. Who can stand against that day? Those who are covered in the righteousness of Christ. Revelation 19, verses 14 through 16 says this, And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords the winepress of the fierce wrath of God. We cannot grasp in our finite minds the absolute terror of the wrath of God. We can't imagine that at all. When the wrath of God against all unrighteousness and ungodliness is poured out on that day, the unbridled fury of God unleashed on the ungodly, our minds cannot grasp what that would be like. But it is coming. He's promised us that. And only those who are covered in His righteousness will escape this wrath. This is the this is why the story of Sodom and Gomorrah sets up like that, looking for righteous. He says, you won't destroy the wicked with, or the righteous with the wicked, will you? Nobody says, but the one will be pulled out and then one will be destroyed. They're not going to be having the same fate. The righteous and the unrighteous have a different fate in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so it will be on the last day. And then we find in Chapter 19, you'll notice verse 1, it says, Now the two angels came to Sodom. This is important. Why two angels here? Well, when you start to look at scriptures that talk about the final day, you find many references to angels coming with him in fire. So I don't think it's any mistake that here, in this story that's pointing to the final judgment on the last day, we find two angels coming as well. Let's read some of these verses that talk about angels and the last day and fire. In Matthew chapter 13, this is Jesus explaining the parable here. The wheat and the tares. The wheat being the Christian, the tare being the non-believer. The wheat being the righteous the tear being the unrighteous. He says this, Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And he said, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man, and the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the evil are the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are the angels. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so will it be, shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man, here He comes, will send forth His angels, 
and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You see, before that great day of judgment and the fire that comes, you find angels that are present with the Son of Man. And here in Sodom, before they are destroyed and the wrath of God poured out, we find angels being mentioned here. And just to make another quick note on eschatology, you will find in this parable that the question is, do you pull one up before the other or do you let them both be? And the answer is, no, let them both grow together, the wheat and the tare, the believer, the non-believer, and they'll all be gathered at the harvest, which is the end of the age. Again, not a secret rapture, gathered at the end of the age. One will be thrown into fire. One will enter the kingdom of heaven where righteousness dwells. Again, the end of that, we'll read it a little bit later, but the end of that parable, he says that's where righteousness dwells. What are they looking for in this city? Righteousness. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5 through 10. Again, we have fire, we have judgment, we have angels being mentioned. It says this is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Again, there's the reference. Dealing out retribution to all those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who believed for our testimony to you was believed. Again, we have a reference, eternal destruction, the final day, we have fire, we have angels, we have the Son of Man coming. And then in Revelation chapter 14, verses 14 through 19, again, we have another reference of angels in this righteous judgment. You won't be able to look at it on your sheet there because I copied it twice. That You have 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5 through 10 twice. So I guess just read it. It's, it's good. You want to read that twice this week? Let's go to Revelation chapter 14. I'll give you a second to get there. Revelation chapter 14. Beginning in verse 14. It says this. Then I looked and behold a white cloud and setting on the cloud was one like a son of man having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, crying out with a loud voice to him who said on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth is ripe. Then he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple, which is in the heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. Then another angel, the one who has power over fire, came out from the altar, and he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, because her grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. Again, we find this mention, which seems like maybe not a big deal, that there's angels, there's two angels going before this destruction. We know that this destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah is pointing to that last day in that wrath of God and that righteous judgment. And we have all through the New Testament, the angels coming with him, the angels in fire. And now we have in this story, the two angels happen to go before this wrath is poured out. And then we find in this story that the righteous are removed. They are taken out of the city. They are righteous not because of their own merit, but they're righteous because of God and God alone. And look what happens to them. 
I think this is just, you start to see the picture just closing in on these details, pointing to the last day. It just becomes more and more clear as we work through the story. Look at it in verse 24. Lot and two daughters escape. They're out of the city. And then in verse 24, we have this. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. You know, it'd be really amazing if we could find some like last day verses and it like that talked about some fire and brimstone. Oh, wait a minute. There, there they are. Revelation chapter 14, verse 10. He, will, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. Just stop and listen to that part again. You want to talk how serious God is with sin and unrighteousness? Listen to that again. He also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. You'll notice that the presence of the Lamb is there distributing the eternal punishment and immutable wrath in the presence of the angels and the presence of the Lamb. But here we have in this end time, last day judgment and throughout eternity, we find this picture of fire and brimstone. You've heard that saying, those old fire and brimstone preachers speaking of the last day. That's why they say that, because they're speaking of that final judgment, that final day and the eternal wrath poured out through eternity. That's what they're alluding to there. But it's no accident that we find fire and brimstone being rained down on Sodom and Gomorrah, representing the last day and the judgment of God. And that's what we find consistent in the New Testament. Revelation chapter 19, verse 20 says this, And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophets who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were also were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. This is the lake of fire, fire and brimstone. This is the immutable eternal wrath of God against all unrighteousness. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 11 through 15 says this, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which are written in the books, according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every one of them according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found and written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Again, the immutable wrath of God, fire and brimstone. Revelation 21, verse 8, But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And not to repeat myself too much, but Psalm 11, verse 6, Upon the wicked he will rain snares, Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. Do you see the picture? You know, when we look at Sodom and Gomorrah, if you ask the majority of people, what is the point of Sodom and Gomorrah? The first thing that would come to our mind is the abomination that is homosexuality. And it is. It is filthy, disgusting, against nature. It's abomination before the sight of God. But there's more to the story than just homosexuality. We're going to find some verses here in a minute that's telling us, use this as a warning for the last day. This is what's going to happen to the unrighteous. 
The righteous will escape. The righteous will not suffer the wrath of God. But those who are unrighteous, it will be fire and brimstone and immutable wrath forever. Make no mistake about it, Sodom and Gomorrah had fire and brimstone rain down upon it. And then look what we continue to read, verse 25. And he overthrew those cities and in the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. There'll be more to that a little bit later tonight. That's part of your surprise. What was on the ground that it doesn't grow? That'll come back to be handy a little bit later. It's almost like the word of God is true and real. It's because it is true and real. But his wife from behind looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Now Abraham arose early in the morning and went to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he saw and behold, the smoke of the land ascended like the smoke of a furnace. So we have fire and brimstone and we have the smoke of that carnage ascending to the heavens. I'll just read it to you in Revelation chapter 14, verses 9 through 11. Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels. I did it again. No, did it. no, I didn't. I'm still on the same page. These words are getting smaller on this page, guys. I may have to get some cheaters up here next time. It says this. He will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels, in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night. Those who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. So here we have fire and brimstone of that eternal judgment. And what does uh, the, uh, the author here, John, tell us? And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. What did we read here as Abraham looked down upon Sodom and Gomorrah? He said, that he was seeing that the smoke of the land ascended like the smoke of a furnace, just like it says in Revelation, the fire and the brimstone and the smoke of their torment forever. We see that here in this story in Sodom and Gomorrah. Isn't it remarkable? Isn't it amazing the details that are overlooked so often? That this story is pointing us to the end. And when we get to the story of of Daniel, or excuse me, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we are going to be talked about a furnace there. And that furnace, when that word translates into furnace, into the New Testament, we find that picked up in the parable that we found in Revel or Matthew chapter 13 about that eternal furnace, hell. So when we get to Shadrach, and Meshach, and Abednego, we are rescued from that fire. We are rescued from the wrath of God and the eternal damnation that we deserved because of Christ, Christ alone. Again, it's in Him. He's the way, the only way that there is. But isn't that remarkable? He's looking for righteousness. The righteous will not have the fury and the wrath of God poured out in this city upon them at this time. The angels come. The righteous are removed. Fire and brimstone come down and the smoke of that ascends to the heavens, which is exactly the picture that we get in the New Testament about the wrath of God and eternal damnation. Then I want to draw your attention. Now, you remember where we started this tonight? We started in Genesis 13. I labored the point about Abraham. Remember last week that we labored the point about Abraham and the promise the promise uh, uh, that he passed between those carcasses and he made that promise. He swore by himself so that all who believed would be that, have that inheritance and have that promise. And it would be that promise that would be the anchor to our soul. Remember that we talked about last week with Melchizedek and the promise to Abraham, how uh, he was blessed. 
And then I started this uh, sermon off tonight with uh, God promised Abraham and all his descendants they would inherit this land. And I want you to see that as Abraham looks after the fire and the brimstone has been upon this city, not one was spared. Young and old, married and single, doesn't matter. The unrighteous were not spared. But they were destroyed because God's looking for righteousness. That's what it's pointing to the last day. And Abraham looks and he sees the fire and the brimstone and the ruins of it. And he sees the smoke of that rising off the land. You know, that smoke would eventually go out. But the smoke of their torment in eternity never goes out. I mean, can you really stop and think about it? I mean, our minds can't comprehend this. The holy God, the all-powerful God, the creator of heaven and earth, amen. He didn't spare his own son, the son that he had fellowship and loved before the foundation of the world. You see what he did to people with just one sin in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament with Ananias and Sapphira there in Acts. One sin merits death. Can you imagine storing up for yourself wrath against that day? And on that day, the unbeliever will be faced with the eternal, immutable, unbridled fury of God Almighty. And it won't just be for an hour. It won't just be for a day. It won't be for a million years. It'll be forever. It'll be eternal. He's serious about righteousness. And now you see that none of us have that righteousness. That's all of us. That's what we deserve. And that's why his incarnation, fulfilling all righteousness, dying on the cross, that's why we are helpless without that. That's our only thing we cling to to escape this wrath or we would be the same. And let me just say this before we start to wind this down. Everyone there that feels the presence and the power and the immutable wrath of God for all eternity, do you know what? It's exactly what they deserve. It is just. His righteousness and His wrath and His judgment is just. It's perfect. And like R.C. said, if He put us, us there, then he would be just in doing so. That would be what we deserve for sin against a holy God. But thank God for grace. Thank God for mercy. Having been justified by faith, we've escaped the wrath of God. This is a beautiful story. That's the gospel, the good news. But justice is being poured out upon all that face this. And it should be us. We deserve this. But mercy and grace was given to us. But look what happens in verse 29. Do you see these three words? God remembered Abraham. He remembered Abraham. You see who escaped out of the city? They were all related to Abraham. The sons-in-law didn't make it out. The wife didn't make it out. She wasn't blood-related. It was only those who were related to Abraham that escaped that wrath. You remember that God promised Abraham that his descendants would inherit the land. And you remember he, they cut the carcasses and he swore that among, uh, 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 unto himself, by himself, that all who believe, they would have this promise. And now God remembered Abraham in the middle of this chaos, in the middle of this scene which represents the last day. God remembered Abraham. God remembered his promise. God remembered the covenant. God remembered that all who are children of faith like Abraham have been justified. And they escaped the wrath on that day. Isn't that beautiful? God remembered Abraham. That's why that promise is everything. 
Abraham, you want to know how serious I am about this promise? I myself will pass by those carcasses. I will swear among to myself. And if you believe my promise, I'll remember those that believe and they will escape the wrath that is poured out on that day. All who believe in faith like Abraham are the descendants of Abraham and by faith are saved from the wrath to come. That's why that's so important at the end. It's Abraham's uh, family that's saved. Abraham was remembered through the promise of God. And all those who are children of Abraham have believed and have been justified by faith. And that means they're covered in the righteousness, which is what God's looking for when he returns. Here's some verses on Sodom and Gomorrah as we begin to close. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 6. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. He says, look what he did to the people in Sodom and Gomorrah. Let that be example to the ungodly. That will be what the case is to the ungodly, the unrighteous on the last day. Luke 17, verses 28 through 30 says, It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. Jude 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since in that same way as they indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited, here's here's the proof text that we need, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Here we have Jude himself writing this, saying, This is an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. You want to know what the main crux of Sodom and Gomorrah in that story is? It's an example of the punishment of eternal fire against all those who are unrighteous. And that doesn't even pale in comparison to what the last day will be like. And I just want to bring this up. Genesis 18, 25. The question is asked, Shall not the judge of all the earth Deal justly? You're going to destroy all the ungodly in that? You're really going to do that to these people? Are you sure this is the right thing to do? That's not mean. That's not too harsh. That's not... Are you sure? Are you sure that the, the judge of all the earth shall deal justly? Yes. Yes, he will. And he does. He's a perfect righteous judge. God is glorified in mercy that he shows and he's glorified in the wrath that he distributes. He's glorified in his grace that he gives freely and he's glorified in the justice that he distributes. So no matter what happens to us in our life, if we feel like maybe God is acting unfairly, just remember that that the judge of all the earth deals justly all the time. So we come to this and we see all these points of Sodom and Gomorrah showing how those who are righteous will escape that wrath that day. All those who are descendants of Abraham by faith will escape this wrath because it is that faith that brings them justification which brings them the righteousness to which merits them entrance into heaven, Christ's righteousness. It is those angels that are representing all the scriptures in the New Testament of the angels coming with the Son of Man on that day in fire. It is fire and brimstone in the lake of eternal punishment that we see. And it is the smoke of the torment that rises forever that we find alluded to here in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. It is pointing to the end. The question is, are you righteous? And the only way we can be, again, let me, this is the gospel. How can we be righteous? Through faith in Christ. He lived the perfect life, fulfilling all righteousness so that it can be imputed to us. It is his righteousness that we escape this. All glory to him. So what kind of people should we be? Says this should be an example to us. This should be an example to all the ungodly. 
But what kind of people should we be as a result of knowing this knowledge? Well, let's read it. Second Peter chapter three, verses seven through 13. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire. Just reserved, waiting for that day. Kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved. Talking to the elect here. That with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. It says, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be? Isn't that the question? What do we do with this information? What kind of people should we be in the light of knowing that this is what will be the fate? What sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Sanctification. Growing in holiness. That's what we're to do. Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise... We are looking for a new heaven and a new earth. And look what happens to dwell there. What were they looking for in Sodom and Gomorrah? Righteousness. And look what will be in this new heaven and the new earth. It is where righteousness dwells. That's the promise that we have. So we end with this to summarize it all. One day God's wrath will be poured out, revealed upon all ungodliness and those who suppress the knowledge of truth in unrighteousness. And when he comes on the last day, he's looking for righteousness. And those who are unrighteous will face the immutable, eternal wrath of God that will be poured out. However, all those who are descendants from Abraham by faith are covered in the righteousness of Christ. And they will be spared from the wrath of God because Christ satisfied that wrath upon the cross. He took the wrath that was due us. It is faith in Him that we are declared righteous and will escape the wrath to come. And on that last day, we will enter into the consummation of that promise we found in Genesis 13. The consummation of the land that was promised to Abraham's descendants. And just to remind ourselves again, that is where righteousness dwells. So when we look at the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, it does speak to the ungodliness and the perversions that were going on there. But there's more to the story. It's speaking of the truth. It's speaking of escaping the wrath of God by righteousness. The gospel being presented here. The escape from eternal wrath. The way of that being presented here. We find it here. Again. On that day, he's looking for righteousness. And that only comes when you are justified. And those whom he foreknew, he predestined. And those whom he predestined, he calls. And those whom he calls, wait for it, he justifies, declares them righteous. And those whom he justifies, he glorifies. In this new heaven, in this new earth, where righteousness dwells. So I hope this is a warning to us. I hope we tonight can see the, the absolute terror of the wrath of God. But if you're a believer tonight, clothed in the righteousness of Christ tonight, let it be known of why you escape this wrath. This wrath is due you and I. And it is only by the mercy and grace of God that we escape it. So let us glory in Christ. Let us glory in Him. Let us give Him honor to which He is due all. So as we read the story, you know what I'm going to ask you to do with me. Two things. I'm going to ask you tonight that you would maybe agree with me that the Bible 
is so much better than what we've made it. And as we look at this story, we could say there's more to the story. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, let this be a wake-up call for us to understand your wrath, to understand the dependency we have upon you. Lord, let us look to the perfect life you live, the active obedience of you upon this earth, as that is the righteousness that covers all who believe so that this wrath can be escaped. Father, let us thank you tonight. Let us give you glory and praise for that. If nothing else tonight, Lord, let us glory in the fact that it is by your hand and your mercy that we have been justified. And in that we have been declared righteous, not that we are righteous, but that you've declared us righteous. And we sit here clothed in a robe of righteousness that is not ours. And it is that robe of righteousness that will be seen on the final day. The robe of righteousness of the Son. And by faith in Him, we escape this wrath. Father, we owe it all to You. God, we give You glory and praise. And Father, let us have a, a deeper passion to evangelize Your gospel as this is the fate of all who do not believe. So use us, God, as means to the end. Let us be ambassadors and instruments for you to share the gospel and to point everyone to you because you are the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to you, Father, but by your Son. We give you glory and praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.